Numbers, Numbers chapter 27. Now, in Leviticus, don't turn there, I'm just going to refer to it, but Leviticus chapter 25, God told the people that the promised land is his. God owns the promised land. And the people were to go in and possess it as stewards. And so God says, I've got this piece of land, and I have it for you. I have a future and a hope for you. I have this place of blessings that I desire for you to enter in and for you to possess. It's the same thing that God wants of you, not to go over to Israel so much, but he wants you to enter into the blessed Christian life. Now, the blessed Christian life is his, but he's calling you to go in, and he's calling you to possess it. I'd like to do that, Pastor Mike. How do I do that? You do that by doing this, by being obedient to God's word, by living a Christian life to the best of your ability, how God has called you to do so, so that you would present before God a life that is worthy of being blessed, but also understanding as I enter into my Christian life, above and beyond all, I'm a steward. I, I, what does a steward do? A steward is one who's been given responsibility over his owner's riches. And as I am a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, he has given me certain of his riches. Now, what are the main riches that the Lord has? Look in front of you, look behind you, look beside you, look in the mirror, his people. His people are his most precious possession. And again, as I've said before, if you're a born-again believer, you're a leader of some sort, that means you're a steward over his people. You're a steward over his riches. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, it says, And I also say to you, Jesus speaking to the apostle Peter, that you are Peter, and on this rock, Lord speaking of himself, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. But my point here is, notice that Jesus refers to it as his church. I may be the pastor here, but this is not my church. We will refer to this, and I really have a problem you doing it, referring to Calvary Chapel, Ontario, as my church. I refer to it as my church, but ultimately we know that this is the Lord's church. It's not an agency of man. It's not something that man is able to take possession of because it is the Lord's. We are stewards. God has given us responsibility over this possession that he owns. Why? because it's he and he alone who has paid the price. And so this makes us all stewards over Jesus' church, over Calvary Chapel, Ontario, and then we have various levels, I guess you could say, of responsibility. As the pastor, I would be most responsible, but as this is, we're all part of this church, every member, everybody who considers this to be their church is responsible for their particular part. We received a piece, uh, an email this, this afternoon, I guess it was. My wife forwarded it to me of a lady who uh, contacted us uh, through the Internet. When they contact us through an Internet, there's a title that is unique to all other emails. So I know that she contacted us through the Internet. Maybe you're even here tonight. I, I don't know who she is. But she wants to know what is necessary to become a member at Calvary Chapel, Ontario. Possess it. Possess it. Call it your church and possess it. Be here. Be involved here. If, you're, if you possess it, if you're involved here, if you attend here, then this is yours. Then this is your church. This is part of what God has given you to exercise 
stewardship over. Look at the other various areas of your life that you have stewardship over. Again, these are God's riches that he has bestowed upon you, your spouse, if you're married. You're responsible. That's a rich, a rich, one of the riches of the Lord. Again, I will refer to my wife as my wife, but really she's my sister in the Lord. She's God's daughter that he has given me to exercise stewardship over. My children, they've just been given to me on loan for a period of time, even though you, you can't give them back. I tried. That, it doesn't work. But no, they're, they're, they've been given to me as a steward, to steward over. Same thing with grandchildren. Same thing with my spiritual giftings, our spiritual giftings, our jobs, all of our things and all of our stuff. And ultimately, everything is the Lord's. All good things come from God. And so I've got to re-examine so many things. Just as Israel needed to have the proper perspective of that promised land, I need to have a proper perspective on every way that God has blessed me and that I'm a steward over these things. How can I use these things for my master's benefit? Jesus used this concept in an illustration, end-time illustration, in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 19. He says... For the kingdom of heaven is like. And so there's a comparison here, a comparison that worked in their day, that works in our day. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country. Now a man here would be the Lord Jesus Christ. The far country would be at the right hand of the Father. Like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants, that would be you and I, and delivered his goods to them. Those are the things that God has given you to be a steward over. And to one, he gave five talents. Now, you can look at talents as, well, talents here are a measure of money, but you can bring it into our language and look at it as a talent, as an ability, as some sort of gifting. It, it works both ways. And to one, he gave five talents, to another two, and another one, to each according to his own ability. So God is going to gift you as he has enabled you. He has enabled you different as he has enabled me different from you. He's enabled all of us differently, and he has given to us all differently. And that's the beauty of the body of Christ. As every member does its part, we work in concert with one another to produce a healthy body. We've just been praying for a bunch of people whose bodies aren't working in concert. We call that sick. Far be it that we would be a sick church where every member is not doing his part to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he had received two, gained two more also. And he who had received one went and dug it in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And guess what? The one who hid it in the ground was rebuked. We have not been called to hide these things, to protect these things so much but to use these things for the glory of God, to prepare these things to give glory to God. So as Israel, and keep in mind Israel, that name Israel means governed by God, is on the cusp of entering into the promised land, God is giving them some preliminary instructions here in number chapter 27. Tonight we'll see three of them. They seem to be random, and they pretty much are, but they're issues that were being, being dealt with at the time but very important in maintaining unity and extending the ministry into the future. As far as today, it's important that we maintain unity in the body of Christ. Remember, every member working in concert with one another. As your car works in concert with all of the other parts your car does well, when it doesn't, 
it, it just doesn't. And so as far as today, we've got to be doing that, but also we've got to be thinking of the future as well, and that's what God is doing here. And so we're going to divide chapter 27 up into three parts. The first thing we're going to see is a problem, verses 1 through 11. Then secondly, we're going to see a passing, verses 12 through 14. And then lastly, we'll see an appointment, verses 15 through 23. So first thing we see, there's a problem. Now, I'm just going to preface it this before I get into the scripture. In our Christian lives, and this is going to be the concept we're going to be looking at here tonight, we're going to encounter those shaded areas those shaded areas of, of those who want to walk in the will of God. And, and, and as I want to walk in the will of God, and there is a lot that is black and white, and I'm always, I'm the kind of person that's always looking for the black and white, the thou shalts and the thou shall nots, and, and, and apply that to every aspect of my life, I realize, well, not everything is black and white. In the work of ministry is um, doing the work of a leader, not everything can be colored black or white. And so what we're going to be looking at here tonight is going to be what happens when there's a gray area. And how do we approach a gray area? Because there always seems to be these gray areas in Christianity. There was a gray area here in chapter 27, verses 1 through 11, that's never really been considered until it came up. And so in Christianity, gray areas, alcohol. Well, for me, it's a conviction that became a rule. I know what God has called me to do and told me to do. Now, the Bible does not say anywhere that just simply drinking alcohol is a sin, although it is a sin to be drunk with alcohol. But I made a determination that I knew what God was calling me to, and God was calling me to abstain from alcohol. So for me, it became a black and white area. Not necessarily for everyone else, but, but then even that black and white area, it kind of got colored gray because, okay... God has called me to abstain from alcohol, so never again will I drink alcohol. What about mouthwash? Most people appreciate it when I use mouthwash. And I guarantee you, there are some of those molecules when you, you spit that mouthwash, that's still, and they go down your throat, and you just drink alcohol. See, so you can't be black and white. Okay, well, I'm not going to drink alcohol for the purpose of inebriating myself, but I'll use it when it's, you know, necessary to be used, you know, medication or whatever. And so we kind of work these black and white areas out, these gray, I'm sorry, these gray areas out. For the Jews, they took the Sabbath to ridiculous proportions. Matter of fact, to even such a degree that you wouldn't take a bath on the Sabbath. Why? Because sitting in that tub, it's work. You're cleaning yourself. What happens if you splash water out of the tub and then you step on the water? Well, you just clean the floor. And there was a lot of different areas like that that it was just absolutely ridiculous to such a degree. They made it such a black and white thing that they sucked the life out of it. God's intended purpose for them to find rest and peace on the Sabbath day, but now they made it ten times the day of work than it was before. When we were in Israel... We're standing there at the elevator, just about ready to go on, and somebody said, wait, that's a Sabbath area, uh, elevator. I knew what a Sabbath elevator was, because on the Sabbath, in order to abstain from work, a Jew doesn't want to push the button on the elevator. So if he's going to go up to the 20th floor, he gets on at the lobby, he gets in, it shuts automatically, and it goes up to the first floor and stops. goes up to the second floor. It stops at every single floor. Why? Just to keep them from pushing the button. 
Now, I didn't figure this one out, and next time I go to Israel, I will. I don't know how they get the button pushed so that they know that, you know, the elevator knows that they're there. I guess it just keeps going up and down and stopping at floors. I don't know. But you get into these black and white areas that you become kind of foolish. Well, now the area, and this is important, because again, keep in mind, Israel, they're in the plains of Moab. They're preparing to enter into the promised land, and as they go into the promised land, God told them, we just saw it in the previous chapter, they've got to divide the land up. And they've got to divide the land up according to families and according to inheritance, inheritances. And now there's an issue. Here's a gray area, an area that seemed to be so black and white, but now all of a sudden it's been called into question. Verses 1 through 5, Then came the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, from the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and these were the names of his daughter, Mahal, Noah, Hoglah. Now, I don't know if the daughter really appreciated being called Hoglah, because I know when I was a kid what I would have called my sister, if that was her name. Uh, Melchal and Tirzah, and they stood before Moses, before Eleazar the priest. So they're they're bringing this up before Moses. They, they need an answer on this. And Eleazar the priest, remember Aaron is, is dead at this time. And before the leaders and all the congregation by the doorway of the tabernacle of meeting, saying, so it sounds like all of the 12, the leaders of the 12 tribes are there as well. Verse 3, our father died in the wilderness, but he was not in the company of those who gathered against the Lord in company with Korah. We, we know Korah, that was a rebellion that sprung up, and a lot of people died from that. And so she's, they're saying, these daughters are saying, he wasn't involved in that. So this was a man who was of integrity. Uh, he was not in company with Korah, verse 3, but he died in his own sin. Well, all of those people who were in the wilderness died in their own sin. It was a lack of faith. It was a commonality between all. And he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be removed from among his family? Because he had no son. Give us a possession amongst our families, our father's brothers. So Moses brought their case before the Lord. So Moses is considering this. They got a point here. We didn't ever really think about that before. Because see, in the culture of Israel of the day, the eldest son, he would get two-thirds of the father's property and his possessions. That was the privilege of being the older son. And then however many other sons a man may have had, they would divide up the other one-third. And that being the case, if there was any daughters, the daughters, well, they would be married off and absorbed into their husband's family, but if they remained, they would be provided for by the eldest brother. The eldest brother would take care of his mother and any sisters that he had with the inheritance that he received from his father. But there's no brothers here. Where is the property going to go? So again, we see how they're going to deal with this particular issue and the manner in which they dealt with this particular issue, we should be able to plug in the issues of our lives. Because again, if you desire to enter into the promised land, the blessed Christian life, well, you're going to look for the black and white. But every once in a while, again, you're going to come up upon the gray area, the areas that you're not really so sure. Now, all the sinful areas, those are black and white. They have been pointed out exactly what's sin and what's not sin. But again, there's certain area, I just used the example of alcohol. You can use whatever example that maybe you want to use. And so Moses, he's the leader. Everybody's looking at him. 
he's faced with this issue. What is he going to do? Well, he's going to seek after the Lord. We see in verse 5, so Moses brought their case before the Lord. Interesting concept. Do you ever think of it that way? Not so much running to Pastor Mike or running to anybody else, but first seeking out the Lord on the matter. And I think the best way to do it is, is for you to, you know, if you're married and you're seeking out a gray area between husband and wife is to get together and you two together to seek out the Lord. But if you're not married, that's fine. It's to seek out the Lord on your own. Have it confirmed by leadership, but first make it a diligent practice to seek after the Lord in the areas of your Christian life, in the areas in which God has called you to be a steward. And so as Moses did, we need to take our gray areas of obedience before the Lord. Now, Moses has done this before. Actually, he's done this before in areas that were a little bit even more black and white than gray. Because in Leviticus chapter 24, if you recall, there was the man who blasphemed God. Well, the penalty was death. It's kind of a strong penalty. We better make sure that we're right on this one. And so he sought the Lord. The man was put to death. Numbers chapter 15, there was a man who violated the Sabbath. Well, the penalty for that is death. That's a strong penalty. We better make sure that we're right in this. And so what did they do? They sought after the Lord. And in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 13, concerning the blasphemer, it says, and the Lord spoke to Moses. In Numbers chapter 15, when it came to the guy who violated the Sabbath, and the Lord spoke to Moses. And so the point is, if you seek after the Lord, the Lord is going to answer you on these things. So he sought the direction of God, and God gave him the proper direction. Now, what we need to consider is, do we serve a God who is, and do we see, serve a God who is not silent? I mean, does God speak to men? Does God speak to women? Well, I present to you that God is there, and God is not silent. We need to have an ear to hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. Now, if God has called me to enter into the blessed Christian life, and to possess it, and to to live that life that is sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has led me to, or commanded me to lead my family and to govern the affairs of my home and all of these things. He doesn't just kick you out there and say, do it. He'll guide you through it and, and minister to you in the midst of it. And so as you're honestly seeking after the Lord for the details of your home life, he's going to answer you. He's going to give you that. Now, you may not like the answer. You may choose to ignore the answer, and then you're just going to open up a whole other can of worms. But God is going to direct you. Now, as for us today, what do we do with the gray areas of our lives in seeking out what is right? How do you make the decisions? Do you make the decision based upon the flesh? And I'm not talking about the flesh so much as it's just out-and-out out sin, but the flesh as much as, well, you know what? I really have a desire for that. I'd really find an element of comfort in that. But what does God say about that? Well, you know, that it's not really sin. I mean, it's not going to really set my heart away from God. Yeah, but is it taking you a little bit out of the shadow of God's wings? That place where God will bless? I mean, to truly have an ear for the Holy Spirit is to empty yourself of your flesh to the best of the degree that you're able to do and focus upon the Spirit and then be receptive of the answer. How many times have we prayed, 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 got the answer, and you tell it, no, Lord, that's not it. You know, again, it's one of those, not thy will, but my will be done. We can so easily be led that way. 
already having our answer formulated in our own heart before we even present it before the Lord in prayer. And then that gray area becomes a black area in your life because you didn't listen to the Lord. And so a decision based upon the flesh is coming to a conclusion just because something is either pleasurable, desirable, or even more comfortable to you. But just because something is pleasurable, desirable, comfortable, does not make it acceptable in the sight of God. Now again, this is a gray area. It's not an area that you can look up in the Bible and say, nope, that is sin. And so that gray area, Lord, show me the direction, show me the way that you would have so that I would be in your will, that I would be a proper steward of all that you have given me. As a man, show me, Lord, this ministry to my wife. Show me, Lord, in this area, this ministry to my children. Should I send them to public school? Should I send them to private school? Because it says nothing about public school or private school in the Bible. And again, this one job over here, this job over there. And again, it can be such a gray area. Now, the Bible does say I have to work, but I looked on here and it doesn't say electrician anywhere. Matter of fact, if you look from cover to cover, there's no electricians in the Bible. They didn't have electricity back then, other than lightning, but... Well, I guess there was a couple of electricians, but they died pretty quickly. Um, the two that, uh, well, the ones that, uh, Aaron's son, that rebelled against God. But anyway, that's something else. But Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 says, For you, I just make myself crack up sometimes, I'm sorry. <laughs> Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh but through love, serve one another. So I've been called to liberty. I've got the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is sovereign in my life, and, and it's a joy. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to heaven through faith in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, and he's lavished me with his grace. But don't use the liberties that you have for failing in the flesh. Because although you're born again, you'll wander out from that, that promised land, from that blessed Christian life. Now, you're still in the Christian life, but now you're wandering around in, in the wilderness. You're in that place of misery, and you're in that place of, of alone. So you, brethren, speaking to Christians, have been called to liberty. We rejoice in the liberty, but not for jumping into sin, but when those times that we do stumble and fall. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. And this really gets me when I hear people say, well, yeah, I'm involved in this, or I'm involved in that, and it's a sinful thing. But their explanation is, well, the Bible says God has to forgive me. God's not contractually bound to forgive anybody. God pours that out from his grace. But as I look in the scripture, when does forgiveness come? Forgiveness came at the point of repentance. And if there's no repentance, I have to ask, is there really, is there really forgiveness? I'm not saying that anybody's lost their salvation, but I'm wondering if there was ever really salvation. So it's with this knowledge that we seek the Spirit concerning the benefit of others. Because again, I've been called to be a steward, a steward over the valuable possessions of my master. And we pointed out that the valuable possessions of our master is his people. And as it's his people, I need to examine the graves. That's what Moses is doing because he's concerned about these girls, these daughters of this man he wants to do. He knows he's responsible. He knows he needs to do what is right. So 
we need to reevaluate the gray areas that we have shaded either black and white in the light of God's will for our ministry and in the midst of our culture and at a place in time. So how do we do all of this? The same way Moses is, again, just seeking the Lord. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing. So if you're anxious about something, black, white, gray, what, no. Be anxious about nothing, but in everything by prayer, supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So conversation, supplication, and appreciation. Conversation, prayer. Supplication, praying for something specifically, and appreciation, prayers of thanksgiving. That's how you're to seek the Lord out and try and attempt to go after his will. Now, he's going to reveal his will, but to have an ear to hear. How are you going to have an ear to hear? Speak to God and then listen to God. How do you listen to God? By getting into his word every single day. And so at some point in the midst of all this, whatever the situation is, whatever it is that you might be confused about, concerned about, maybe a gray area in your life, do that. Lift it up to the Lord in prayer. And I guarantee you, you'll come to the place that your conscience will bear witness on the direction that you should go. Because what we're told after Philippians chapter 4, 6 is Philippians chapter 4, 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If you're concerned about somebody finding out about your liberty or your gray area, then I think you pretty much need to understand that that is not of God. And so... Verse 5, Moses brought their case before the Lord. And then verse 6, there's that common response of God. And the Lord spoke to Moses. God answered him. If God answered Moses, you're no more, or you're no more less special in the sight of God than Moses was. So just as surely as he spoke to Moses, he will speak to you. Verse 7, the daughters of Siloaphad speak what is right. You shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their father's brothers and cause the inheritance of their father to pass to them. And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall cause his inheritance to pass to his daughter. If he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the relative closest to him in his family, and he shall possess it, and it shall be to the children of Israel a statute of judgment, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Just a couple of things here. First, this is a God saying, I never thought of that. God's teaching them to seek after him. Because as they enter into the promised land, as they move on in their lives, there's going to be many areas that they're going to have to seek after him. And then secondly, remember that the land is God's. And so what is God doing as they go in to possess it? Well, he's given this tribe this area, this tribe this area, this tribe that area. But not only that, but the different families and clans, he's giving this plot of land and this plot of land and this plot of land. Now, as God has given a plot of land to a particular person, that is his plot of land. He can't ever sell it. Now, he can sell it for a period of time, but it will always revert back to him. Why? Because it's not his to sell, it's God's. And as it is God's, this man is a steward. You can't sell the master's things and stuff without the master's uh, permission. And so God has given these laws of inheritance, but then they found this little gray area. But what did they do? They sought after the Lord. And as they sought after the Lord, they got an answer for the Lord, and now they're able to move on understanding that they're still in the will of God. 
Secondly, we see a passing, verses 12 through 14. Now the Lord said to Moses, go up into Mount uh, Abarim and see the land which I had given to the children of Israel. And when you've seen it, you shall also you shall also gather you shall let me try this again and when you see it you also shall be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother was gathered for the wilderness of Zin during the strife of the congregation you rebelled against my commandment to hallow me or to honor me at the waters before their eyes these are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin well you remember that we looked at it a couple of weeks ago way back when, when, as soon as they came out of Egypt in Exodus, Moses was commanded to strike the rock and water flowed from the rock. But then later on, the event that he's talking about there, God said, now just speak to the rock and the, water, the rock will deliver the water. But what did Moses, he got frustrated with the people and he hit the rock twice and, and he, he, he basically cursed the people. And what did he do? This man, who was to be a steward, steward of God's riches, a couple million people, he abused God's riches in this particular area. And the thing about Moses, it was just this one thing, this one time, this one area. Well, we've got to realize, what is Moses really a picture of? Moses, in this particular case, is a picture of man's inability to enter into the blessings of the Lord by the law by works, or by one's own righteousness. Only one failure. If you're going to attempt to enter into God's blessing through your own abilities, your own righteousness, through the law or keeping of the law or whatever it might be, religion, well, only one failure that occurs one time in one area is enough to keep you out. One failure. So keep that in mind. When you think that you're holy, when you think that you're righteous, when you think that you're doing it all, again, the Bible, I don't know who counted them or they came up with a number, but it's a generally accepted number, 613 commandments. You've got to keep every single one of them. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but again, how many people here even have the Ten Commandments memorized? I imagine if you went to a pastor's conference and gave a test, I bet you there'd be a lot of guys there that didn't have the Ten Commandments memorized. Think what would happen if you had to have 613 commandments memorized. Now, think of this. Think that your salvation, if your salvation hinged upon you having 613 commandments memorized, we'd all be condemned. We'd all be condemned. I'm sure it's possible, but I don't know. uh, If I just violated one, if I just forgot, just even one time, if the flesh got the better of me just one time, and... Paul spelled this out in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. What's the wages of sin? Moses is experiencing that right now. The wages of your sin, Moses. The wages of that sin, that one day. Now, there was probably, well, I know, not even probably. There was more, but this is one made the Bible. The wages of your sin is going to be death. You will not be able to enter in to the promised land. Any attempt that man makes to break free from the bondage of sin apart from the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to result in death. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you need to thank God for his grace. When you start feeling self-righteous, when you start feeling self-holy, thank God for his grace because you're an imperfect person. And the wages of your 
the wages of sin in your life are going to be death, but God gave you the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so, you know, we look at Moses. He was described in Numbers chapter 12 as being most humble, the Holy Spirit working through him, but nonetheless, he was described as being most humble. Deuteronomy 33, he was described as the man of God. In Deuteronomy 34, he was described as the servant of the Lord. And the problem here is, in verses 12 through 14, he's described as a dead man. Dead man because he falsely represented God. It only takes one. But notice how God takes possession of the law. The law is a beautiful thing. David says, I will, re- I will delight in the law of the Lord. I'll meditate day and night. Now, the law is a good thing. Now, notice what God does. Moses is going to die before he enters into the promised land. It's spelled out in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, what happens when somebody dies? Somebody dies, you you know, maybe family's not around at that point. What do they try to do? They go and they look for the next of kin. When they find the next of kin, that person takes possession and deals with the body. When Moses later dies, who is it that takes possession of the body and handles it for burial? Well, his kin, if you will, Deuteronomy 34, 5 through 6. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he and God buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his grave to this day. God took possession of the body. Moses, Moses was his man. But if you're an imperfect man, then you're going to pay the price. The wages of sin is death. Again, Moses is a picture of the law. He's a picture of trying to enter in according to one's own righteousness. But nonetheless, God still takes possession. Jesus said not one jot or tittle will fade away. It was not until centuries later that Moses would be able to enter into the promised land. It was on that mount of transfiguration that the law could exist amongst God's people. Why? Because of the presence of Christ. The only way that the law can exist amongst the people is because of the presence of grace. Without grace, law becomes something horrible, something that is of our death, and something is of our destruction, and something is of eternity apart from God. But on that mount of transfiguration, you see the illuminated body of Moses, picture of the law, Elijah, the picture of the prophets, and then the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did the Father say? This, speaking of Jesus Christ, this is my beloved son. Not Moses, not Elijah, but this is my beloved son. Hear him. Why? Because it's then that it causes the the law to blossom truly into something beautiful. The prophecies to blossom into something that it gives life and gives hope to all of mankind. Without Christ, they become something horrible in the lives of men. With Christ, they become something very beautiful in the lives of mankind. Today, it does not condemn, but it leads us to the cross. It's through the law that I realize I'm a sinner and I have a need for the Lord Jesus Christ. So all said and done, there is life in the law by the existence of Christ and what Christ has done upon the cross. Not in us doing it, but through the leading of it to the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 7.25, Paul said, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then... With the mind, I myself serve the law of God. I have this desire to be right before God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. It still reveals sin, but later on, 
acknowledge there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then lastly, we have an appointment. Verses 15 to the end of the chapter, verse 23. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them. He's speaking of somebody to lead them. Who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation, and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him, and all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim, and his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, and he and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and he took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation. And he laid his hand on him and inaugurated him, just as the Lord commanded, by the hand of Moses. Now just as Moses the law left, now enters in the one who is the picture of grace, Joshua. Joshua, and it's Joshua who is going to be able to lead the people in. And really what I just want to close with, with just a couple of things. First is the heart of Moses. The heart of Moses, what, he's a good steward. And you see it in Moses. Why? What is he concerned about? He's just been told he's going to die. Not only is he going to die, he doesn't get to go in and see the promised land, experience the promised land. But what's he concerned about? Lord, let me live, or Lord, let me see. No, it's, Lord, what about these people? Lord, because Moses knows, Lord, I've led them throughout the wilderness. They're a stiff-necked people. Lord, these people, they're, they're rebellious people. Lord, they need somebody to watch over them. Lord, they need somebody to keep them. Well, Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for his sheep. Well, Moses... Moses isn't giving his life for his sheep. He's given his life because of the picture of the law, because of sin. But then there's Joshua, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is going to be the good shepherd, who is going to be able to lead his people in. And I'll go ahead and close in Joshua chapter 1, just a couple of things to point out. It says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, it doesn't say this in your Bible, but in mine, in between the lines, it says, uh-oh. Because you can be so bold, you can be so opinionated, opinionated when you're not the, the, the lead person, the lead steward, because everybody's so quick to give their opinion. But what happens when everything points at you? Joshua is realizing everything is pointing at him now. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people to the land which I am giving them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, as I said to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. So there should be a strengthening point. I will not leave you nor forsake you, but be strong and of good courage. Now, I believe it's three times, might be four, I don't recall. In that chapter, be strong and of good courage. Now, why would he say be strong and of good courage? Because at this point, Joshua is not feeling very strong, nor is he feeling very courageous. You don't tell a strong and courageous person, be strong and of good courage. Because again, he's realizing this responsibility now has fallen upon me. 
But Joshua is going to have that advantage that nobody else had had up until that point. Verse 7 repeats it, Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. So again, you're thinking in your mind, 613 commandments. But verse 8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For the first time, man has the written word of God. Now, I know the commandments were carved on stone, but Moses had wrote down all of these commandments. Now Joshua has the manual, the same manual that you have today. And it's only because of that that now he can move forward in grace, that he can be strong, and that he can be courageous. We have that same opportunity. In the gray areas, you can be strong and courageous, that you're going in a good direction as long as you seek after the Spirit and don't seek after the flesh. You don't have to worry about those times when you fail, either a transgression willfully or a sin that you missed the mark. Why? Because instead of that one sin killing you, we've got the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even as Moses was concerned because he knew the leader he was, but he was going away, the Lord sent the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit that directs us and guides us in the ways of the Lord. Father, we just thank you that, Lord, you have been considerate of us and, and Lord, who we are, the imperfection of who we are. Now, Father, we just fail in so many different ways, but, Lord, it's you who work the victory. And because you have worked victory in our lives, that, Father, we can boldly move forward, that we can be strong and that we can be courageous in our Christian lives. There's going to be hard times. There's going to be times that overwhelm us. But, Father, you have overcome the world, and so we rejoice in that. And so, Father, you have prepared our days for us. You have numbered them. You hold our tears in a bottle. And, Father, you have nothing but a future and a hope for us. And so, Father, I pray that we would be bold in you. I pray for those gray areas of our life, that we would be diligent to seek after you, and that, Father, we would make a decision, and we believe we've heard from you, that we would move forward. And so, Father, I pray that we would truly be a people that would prevail, that we would be good stewards, and that we would be wise leaders of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please?